I'm Dylan. And I'm Keon. And this is Zenith, that podcast where the titular character isn't even on the show anymore. Because this week we watched Aftermath. Written by Terry Nation. Directed by Veer Lorimer. And aired on January 7th, 1980. Yeah, Veer Lorimer back again. The only returning director <laughs> for Series C, I found out. So we're going to get a lot of new faces in the director's chair this season, it sounds like. And in the Liberator chair. crew. Oh, I was also in the writer's chair. Yeah, well, not for this story. Not for this story, but this season we do get some new faces. Anyway, We're also in the 80s now. Yeah, we're in the 80s now. I'd like to start by mentioning uh, where this airs in relation to Doctor Who, because it's actually kind of important. This airs right before, about five days before the final episode of Horns of Nymon, which, if you'll remember, ends up being the final story of... Season, season 17. 17, because Shada is not completed because of an industrial action at the BBC. And I actually found this interesting. That industrial action didn't really affect Blake 7 at all because the the industrial action at the BBC t- Television Center happened while Blake 7 was actually filming all the location work. So basically what they did was they filmed location work and then they came back into the studio to film studio work. And... You know, series A was filmed, like, they filmed each episode sequentially, and then I found out series B they filmed, they did six episodes kind of all at once. They did all the location work for six episodes, then all of the the studio work for six episodes, and then they did the same thing for the next six episodes, and then they filmed the final story on its own. And that's a, probably a, that sounds like a really bad way of doing it. I'm sure they had the reasons for doing it that way. Uh, well, the reason why they did it that way is because, one, it's, it's easier that way to actually get all the stories finished on time. You're not running up against the deadline to finish the story right before it airs the next week or a month from now or whatever. You can just basically film all the stories and then get it done and then just relax, I guess. You don't have to keep coming back every week. You just film for like three months and and you're done. This is actually basically how television is filmed nowadays is they film multiple episodes at once, all the location work, all the and then all the studio work. I know Series A was still being done while it was airing so they mm-hmm. you know they're airing the first six episodes of series a they were finishing up the last six yeah and by doing six and the then six seven kind of can <clears throat> prevent that and work around that and they did something similar for series c and so that's why the industrial action didn't actually affect them because they were out doing location work when the industrial action went down so Sharda never got finished because they needed to do studio work and they didn't they couldn't get that done because of the industrial action but then by the time blake seven actually returned to do the studio work the industrial action was over. So they are able to finish filming the studio work after the industrial action. They still were filming while the series aired. I think they didn't actually finish filming the season until about March, which would have been about halfway through the season airing. March 1980. So they started in, I think, like November or October of 1979, or maybe even earlier. And then they finished about five or six episodes in. Filming. Well, good for them you know no no missing episodes of blake seven no janky animations you know everything's there accounted for not on dvd in the u.s what who said that get it out someone bbc get on that you would think they would have done it for the 40th anniversary if they were going to do whatever it would have been for the 40th anniversary yeah i mean instead everybody I just think... gets this janky podcast <laughs> i would buy a blake seven like complete box set probably on dvd yeah, yeah i would too because i'm gonna watch the show again yeah, I would too, except it doesn't exist for U.S., so... Yeah. Kind of uh, a SOL there. Yep. I mean, unless I get a region-free player. Yeah, which I guess you could. 
Honestly, it's more beneficial to have a region free player than a region locked one nowadays. Although, yeah, but there's also so a TV things... compatibility issue as well, which I don't want to. Yeah, like, I was going to also say so many least. things nowadays just aren't even region locked anymore. They're kind of moving away from that. I think in a lot of places, not all. Also, DVDs are still re- region locked, but Blu-rays are tending to be not region locked anymore. Yeah, some some are, but just because it's more difficult to pirate a Blu-ray. <laughs> well. I didn't say it was impossible <laughs> or hard, just more difficult than a DVD. Anyway, we should also mention the, the well, there's a couple other things we should mention before we get into the plot of the episode. There's a new title sequence, which... Yeah, it, it's, it looks, it's a lot less, this is how I would describe it. This is how I'm going to describe it. <laughs> it's a lot less, like, there's, it seems to be, it seems that there's a lot less thrown in, right? The first one mm-hmm. had, like, the weird gun... It had the uh, the wanted screen or whatever, and then it also had the, you know, the shots of space. Right. This one seems it's more refined. It's more down to earth, I guess you could say, even though it is just all space and spaceships. It's just the Liberator zooming past things and things flying behind the Liberator, chasing it down. Yeah, it's the Star Which, Trek: The Next Generation title sequence, like six years before the Next Generation even aired. I like the first one better, though. I like the 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 eliminate. I like the the gun going back and forth. I like the Federation guy. I like the new one better. And I like the Liberator flying off slowly at the end instead of, like, zooming on by. I like the new one better because I think it fits better with the title music. I think it's more exciting, and I think it makes more sense. The first one always confused me because it was, like, the gun rotating. I was like, what's the point of this? Yeah, I liked the all Federation the, quote-unquote, random like, there? things thrown in. The reason why they had to change it was because Blake's no longer even on the show anymore, <laughs> and the previous title sequence was basically just Blake, the five-minute introduction to Blake. They could have easily just kept it and been like, whatever, but, you know, they actually put effort into this show, so... <laughs> Yeah, they actually put effort when they can put effort into the show. I think they always put effort. I just think that budget limitations prevent that effort from shining through I sometimes. Guess. And we yes, can all, I mean, we can also mention how, and just talk about it as a separate thing, how Blake isn't on the show anymore. Yeah, Blake's gone. Gareth Thomas's, con- well, actually everybody's contract for 26 episodes ran out at the end of the last season, and Gareth Thomas uh, wasn't really keen on even doing series b so yeah gareth thomas and uh and sally nevette didn't even really want to do series b but they had that contract that required them to then they did and, and they, they did get, i mean they didn't ham it in they did a good job on series b they they mm-hmm. finished up strong i think and then gareth thomas was like yeah i'm not coming back and also he got uh, i think he got an offer for the royal shakespeare company or- yeah he got a better job <laughs> and so he was like yep peace out and sally nevette was also like yeah i'm done and so that went back to school, I think, if I remember correctly. Behind the scenes, they're like, oh, shoot. Now we've got to figure something out. So We'll just take this character who's way more popular than our main character and make him the main character. They considered completely just shelving Blake 7 right then and there without Blake. But then I think Terry Nation and Chris were like, oh, it would be kind of fun to do Blake 7 without Blake. So they decided to introduce a couple new replacement characters. Dana is like the Jenna replacement, but not Jenna at all. But she Dana's a lot cooler than Jenna. Designed to be the Jenna replacement. And then we have, uh, at the very end of the episode, two minutes, we get Tarrant. Yeah, Del Tarrant, not Dev Tarrant. Don't get him confused. <laughs> we get Del Tarrant, who is, I don't know yet, the Blake he's, replacement, I, mean, I guess. He's, he's almost the Avon replacement. If we're going to get a little bit into spoiler territory, if Avon replaces Blake, he's the one who always challenges Avon. So I've heard. <laughs> so I've read. I mean, I don't know anything about Del Tarrant, so I don't really know if I can say. 
if they make Avon more like Blake, which is what it sounds like they were planning to do. And what Although it I seems know, like they're doing just based on this episode itself. I don't know if they fully achieved it because I know Paul Darrow was super against that because I know Paul Darrow said that part of the reason why everybody likes Avon is because of his anti-hero qualities that Blake didn't really have. Yeah. Which also segues nicely into the, the new... We're replacing, you know, Series A, we did awards. Series B, we did rankings. Series C, we're doing the, the what would Blake do moment of the episode. Yeah, it turns out Blake has become our Jesus figure, so it's not WWJD, it's WWBD. <laughs> no. <laughs> what would Blake do? Basically, I mean, it's going to be... You also got to wonder, maybe this is a discussion for later in the episode, but what if Blake became a martyr here at the end of Series B? He's still alive. We get that info at least. For now. For now. Which is actually interesting because the original the original original conception for Series C when they realized they weren't going to have Blake was they were going to do, like last season, they were going to do kind of a two-segment uh, overarching plotline. And the first six or so episodes was, or five was going to be Avon and the Liberator crew looking for Blake and was apparently going to culminate in episode five or six with them finding Blake's grave. So... It's interesting that right off the bat in the first episode, like Blake's alive and we know he's alive. Well, this episode is also, and we're gonna, I'm gonna get into this later at least, but it's doing a lot of like really interesting and mind trippy type things with like what you can trust in a TV show and how like trust works in a TV show on the viewers' part in terms of like what they actually believe is going on and what they don't. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we should probably just f- fully explain what it is we're doing. Yeah. Uh, so basically, the what would Blake do moment is going to be moments that we each pick in the episode where we think. If Blake was there, the entire situation would have played out completely differently, which I think will make more sense once we do it in this episode and that we have an example out there. But basically, yeah. we're going to pick out moments that, not, not necessarily Avon either, what any character in the Liberator crew, if it was Blake, what would they have done? Or just if, yeah, it, it, we'll be like, you know, hypothetically replacing a character with Blake in the scene or just wondering or speculating, like, what would Blake do if he was part of that scene or something? Yeah along those lines i mean this was i actually just thought of this as a joke because i remember i i uh when gan died yeah when gan died and i would always it was always just gan would stand in the corner (laughs) and not do anything but uh yeah i think the the, what would blake do will be a lot more successful (laughs) you think (laughs) might be a total failure anyway the episode starts with villa villa is the first on-screen character in the episode well, actually, the episode starts with that, like, overview of the war against the Andromedans. Yeah. That, like, recap highlight reel of, like, battles that were fought. This is implied to be, like, an entire oh, war. Oh, yeah. We, we see the uh, the ships crash into each other like we did last uh, episode. Well, so at first I thought this was just, like, all happened in, like, one day. But then later on they make it more clear that this entire t- opening sequence was, like, the course of an entire like multi-day maybe even multi-month or year war that was fought between the andromedans and the federation no, i don't i think it was just a couple days max or i don't think it was that uh uh lengthy of an amount of time what clued you into to that? the fact that there's a wikipedia page called the federation war well a war can be fought over <clears throat> a war doesn't have to be long it also, doesn't i mean the seven sur- the seven day war was seven days serverland's dialogue leads me to believe this is really soon after the series b finale Mm -hmm. because she makes reference to like how the federation is like in chaos now and stuff like that i mean 
I don't want to go into it too much, but the the Wikipedia page basically the Wikipedia page, which is titled "Intergalactic War," by the way, basically says that eighty percent of the basically picked up on all the things that like Serverland says in this episode as as throwaway lines. Like eighty percent of the Federation f- fleet was removed, and the Liberator was severely damaged. I mean, yeah, I don't think it's like seconds after the end of Series B, but I, I don't think it's like you know months or. Maybe a week at max or something Maybe. like that. Maybe. The Wikipedia page says that later on in the season, someone indicates that the Andromedans started using biological weapons, which apparently to whoever wrote the Wikipedia page implies that this conflict was prolonged enough that the Andromedans started to use biological weapons. Well, it could have been like a minute two. You know, minute one, they were using regular <laughs> yes. weapons. Minute two, they brought out... Day broke. two. Day two, they're like, well, it looks like we're not winning yet. Bring out the biological weapons. <laughs> I mean, we'll have to see. I didn't get anything just watching the episode myself that indicated this was anything. I mean, too, my too interpretation long. of Serverland's comments was that it was like a couple months. I, that's I didn't just even what get I, that. that's just how I interpreted what Serverland was saying. But we'll yeah, we'll have to see, and and the events of this episode can play out either way. It doesn't that that uh, you know time span doesn't really matter to what happens no, here. No, but very the, much. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But the important thing is that you note that it's not immediately right after Star One. Is that it's definitely at least some time has passed between the start of this episode. Enough and time for eighty percent of the Federation fleet to like get there and be destroyed, and enough time for them to actually travel to another planet. Because remember, there are no planets around Star One, yeah. and they're around Saren right now. Yep. So, which was initially a point of confusion for me because I was like, "Wait, but there are no planets by Star One." And I was like, "Oh, obviously." The anyway, the Liberator's been damaged so much they have to evacuate. And Villa runs into a corridor and he's like, get me out of here. Let me into one of these escape pods. Well, it's because he's running to check the escape pods. And this was kind of a humorous scene because he runs towards the camera and the corridor is like lit red and it immediately cuts to him running away from the camera. And now the corridor is lit green, but it's exactly the same corridor shot from exactly the same angle. So it looks like Villa just runs down the corridor, turns around and runs the other way. (laughs) I mean, it's supposed to be him like running through the corridors with the Liberator, but it looks like he just runs down the corridor, flips and runs back. Yeah, it does. I noticed that too. And he... Checks that the life pods are still working, but they're like on fire. And he's like, we've got to get out of here, Avon. And Avon's like, yeah, okay. And then Callie just makes this throwaway line. Oh, yeah, Blake and Jenna have already been evacuated. <laughs> I was like, what? No, they, just, they decided to stay behind. Blake and Jenna decided to stay with the Liberator. But they did. They do get... Eventually, they get evacuated. They get here. evacuated before Avon. When Callie first shows up, she's like, oh, I had some trouble with Blake and Jenna because they wanted to stay behind. But then when they actually get to Avon, who's getting ORAC, he's, she's like, oh, yeah, they've evacuated. And they're... In the life pods. Huh. Well, Avon gets knocked out. Yeah. I forget why. Just by, like, a falling piece of debris, really. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, he's knocked out. They only have... The, uh, Basically, he pulls again, but yeah. he survives. <laughs> and comes back to actually do things. Zen is counting down menacingly. Yeah. They escape. They, they escape. Yeah, Villa, this is the Villa last we see of Villa and Callie for the story, by the way. Yep. And then I think we get two Federation officers who don't show up in the story again. But I did notice that one of them was Mike Yates. So, oh, really? Yeah, it's Richard Franklin. Wow. The one on the left, it's Mike Yates. Huh. Well, I, even went, I even went to check the credits for this episode to confirm that I was right. And I was. It's Mike Yates. It's Richard Franklin. Well, they, they're on the beach. They're on the planet, which, like we mentioned before, is planet Saren or Saren. Saren. And some Saren natives come by on horses. <laughs> And kill them. A yeah. lot, there's a lot of pushing people down uh, slopes in this story. It starts here. This was filmed on like a beach, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, it was, like not it a was, rock choir for once. Yeah, it was it was on the beach, and a lot of there were actually a lot of similarities between this and Orac. You know, the the guy who's quote unquote exiled, mm-hmm. or is just separated from society in some way. He's a weapons technician, like how Ensor was computer computer technician. technician. Yeah, now that you mention it, there's a lot of similarities between this and Orac. And Orac was like on a beach as well, yep. and there was that trap door that Travis and Silverland. Yep. Which shows We're up on the, you, end of the story. We're again. on to you, Terry. Like <laughs> I Terry. Like I said, or like I always say, writers typically have concepts they keep coming back to again and again. Whether that's it's trap doors for well, Terry Nation. No, whether that's thematic stuff or that's like images that they show you, or trap just stuff doors. that happens. And trap doors is, could, could be you know it could be one of them. I guess I just want to mention that I found out that Terry Nation completely failed at writing the two part finale for last season, and that's why we ended up with the. Uh, Chris Boucher writing the final episode, and uh, who wrote The Keeper? I think it was Alan Pryor. Uh, which is just interesting because like, Terry Nation wanted to write, the, you know, he wants to write the premieres and the finales to his own show, but then he was just having such a hard time just writing the two scripts that Chris was just like, I'll take over from here, Terry. <laughs> anyway. Well, he does write this, and this is yeah. one of, if not my favorite episode of Lake 7. So Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's up there for me. I really enjoyed this episode, too. Basically, Avon Avon now gets captured Watched. by the Sarens, but... Yeah, he's down on the planet. He the, His escape pod lands on the planet. With Orac. They put Orac in the escape pod with him. I guess because Villa and Callie didn't want to leave Avon alone, so they give him Orac. <laughs> or they just wanted to get Orac out of there as well, and they just happened to I mean, they could have taken Avon. Orac, though. Yeah, they could have. But they they just wanted to give Avon a friend, which is kind of funny because Avon and Orac like, hated each other for <laughs> most of the early Series B. Yeah, I mean, that's actually interesting. It's kind of a... Uh, Strand someone with their enemy and then they'll become friends type thing. Yeah, not Servaland though. It reminds me of it reminds me of Countdown. Avon and and the uh, the guy who's yeah, gonna kill guy. him. I forgot his name. I forgot his name too. The guy who's gonna kill him because Avon was in love with his sister and let his sister die. <laughs> so Avon gets captured by the Sands, but then he gets saved by Dana. Yeah, who who saves him with you know a bow and arrow. First, I think, bows and arrows we've seen on Blake 7. And Avon kind of, well, then he, he gets knocked out again, but he wakes up in Dana's, I guess, like, just a cave, actually. It's just a cave. And he's like, yo, we got to go back to what you return, found me. They come back to this cave later. It's a very distinctive, like, orange, orangish-red cave. Yeah, it looks kind of like, um... The Autons. The inside of the Auton. Uh, <laughs> also the thing. inside of the Autons. <laughs> or the From Axons. Yeah, sorry, not the Autons, the Axons. So then Avon's like, you got to take me back because I got to get Orac. And Dana's like, what's Orac? And Avon's like, it doesn't matter. I just need to get Orac. <laughs> so they go get, they go and get Orac. And then Dana basically. That was basically the end of series A. Well, we need to get Orac. Well, what's Orac? Uh, we just need to get it. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you can basically just sum up series A of Blake 7 as a Blake. Blake's just a thorn in the Federation side and tries to get Orac. And series B is just <laughs> Blake takes down the Federation. Series C some is just going to be like... It's just some people die as well. You can't, you can't just skim over Gan's death. Yeah, yeah, maybe I you can. can. Maybe you yeah, can. Yeah, I can. But you can't skim over... I just tra- did it. <laughs> you can't just skim over Travis's death. Yeah, I can. I just did that too. <laughs> These are integral parts of series B. Uh, <laughs> I bet if they killed off Travis because they knew Blake wasn't going to be in the next season, they were like, well, we can't have Travis without Blake, so... Well, what's interesting is that... They bring in Dana and have Servaland kill her father, and now Dana and Servaland are sort of the Blake and Travis parallel. 
Right. At least in this episode. I don't know where they're going to go with that dynamic. Hopefully somewhere. I'm sure they're going to take it somewhere because Dana says, I made a promise and I keep my promise or whatever. Yeah. That's clearly going to be the thing. But the Federation right now is so weak that I feel like, thankfully, actually, the Federation is not going to be a big focus of this season. Yeah, series, I mean, just based on this one episode, you know, we we mentioned a lot of the differences between A and B when we were watching B, but just based on this episode, it seems like C is taking things in a whole new direction, which is good in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. So they get to the base that they live in. Yeah, Dana sort of explains the situation. She and her father live there. They were, Hal. I think, uh, yeah, Hal. I think unbeknownst to her, they were exiled i don't think she knows that they were exiled. no i think were they, she were says they exiled that, or were they no like, i i think hal ran away yeah he ran away that was it she doesn't know that he ran away but she knows that her father brought her there when she was a kid and and the she says the natives used to bother them but <laughs> not when so they much demonstrated anymore. their superior weaponry how we didn't mention is like a weapons technician yeah, so is Dana. Apparently she yeah, learned Dana, from her father. Dana's like better at it than Hal. And she's more willing to use her weapons than Hal, definitely. She can also see better than Hal, so that might be a... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Maybe if Hal could see like the sword, the like long sword type things that the Sarens are using, he would be more willing to shoot them on sight. <laughs> no, probably not. And I've seen an Indiana Jones where the guy's got the sword and Indy just shoots him in the chest. Yeah. Raiders well, that, yeah. Well, that actually reminds me of something I wanted to mention in this episode. Is Dana uses a bow and arrow here, and a little bit later, she explains to Avon how she likes, you know, old weaponry. How there's something mm-hmm. more. I forget what what exactly she says, but there's something more appealing about it. Something more visceral about it. She mm-hmm. likes to feel or kills or something like that. She doesn't say it like that, but what I thought would have been cool is if she was using like you know maybe a modern day like gun, and they refer to that as like an ancient weapon or something like that. That could have been interesting. It wasn't bad what they did, but I just thought I that mean, would have been cool. They've referred to, like, flintlock pistols as ancient weapons before. Yeah. Yeah, Shout out have. to the one with the governor who's... Bounty. Bounty. <laughs> Still cannot remember the name of that story for some reason. I have, like, a mental block just surrounding just that episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it would have been cool. Hal also mentions that, like, Dana likes to try prove a prowess with every weapon ever invented i guess so that's going to be interesting serverland's trying to call for like a federation pickup and no one's picking up and she's like damn guess i'm gonna have to like find another way off this hunk of junk yeah serverland's down there too for some reason yeah they don't really there's no real explain there doesn't need to be i think but there's no real explanation as to why serverland's there we just see her and she's there yeah that doesn't need to be an explanation in my opinion she's just there and that's okay. And she's stranded. We know she's stranded. She's there. president now. So that military coup that went down, that's a that's actually a thing that happened. She's, yeah. she's president yep. now. President of a broken federation. Yeah. She says that later on, like, there's not much to be president of. <laughs> or something to that effect. Yep. I think she, this is where she meets Avon. That's uh, before they get to the base, isn't it? Or is it after they get to the base? I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember either. Let's check. It, it's it's got to be before. Yeah, I think it's before. Yeah, I think it's I think it's before, because I remember he brings Serverland to the base and then he tells Hal that that lady is so 
Serverland and Hal's like, Serverlin? Yeah, I remember her. Right, because actually Dana brings both of them to the base and she tells them that their, her father's name is Hal Mellonby. Mm-hmm. And Serverland sort of has a reaction to that. And Avon goes, do you know that name? And she goes, no. Yeah. So that's before they even meet Hal. And, and I, I think she's telling the truth here. She doesn't uh, remember who Hal Well, yeah, is. because later on she says that she finally remembered who he was. Yep. Dana has an adopted sister. I think her name was Lauren. Yeah, Lauren or Laura, something like that. Almost like how Orac was Lauren. Ensor's Lauren. adopted son. Not oh, really. That's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> that one's a bit of a stretch. I mean, Ensor had a son also named Ensor, so there's that. Was his son also named Ensor, or was that just our mistake? Because I think looking back on it, I think I that think was our mistake. his name is actually Ensor. Sergeant Jaina referred to him as Ensor Jr. in his email. I think that was just him being like Ensor Jr. Because that's because we don't actually get his name. I think it was just Ensor's son. Maybe I'm, I could be completely wrong, but I think I think it was just Ensor's son was his eh, name. But doesn't matter. Yeah, it's in the past now. <laughs> you can't fix your mistakes. You can past. only repeat them. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, too real. So. Hal shows up, and he is blind, or semi, he's semi-blind. Yeah, he's wearing, like, sunglasses. I don't know what the actual term for that is. Bit of an afro. He's legally blind. Yeah, legally blind. That's what it is. He's got a vision amplifier embedded in his chest for some reason. Which, he would be blind without that amplifier. Yeah. Then he makes some snide comment about how how everybody's vision is limited. He just knows that his is limited. People only see what they want to see and he just knows that his is limited. Yeah, and this is actually something that this episode brings up time and time again is like what you can trust. There's there's a lot of reported speech in this episode, right? And, and it brings up what you can trust in a TV show and what makes you trust something when you're watching a TV show versus mm-hmm. like watching a movie, which is almost the same probably, or like right. reading a book or, you know, anything else. You know, there's the reported thing at the beginning. You don't see Blake and Jenna at all in this. All you get is Callie's situation update, I guess. There is the stuff with, there, this is a little later on, but Servaland tells Mellonby that he was a wanted criminal and he, he says, so I've heard or something like that. He, he didn't stick around long enough to really even learn the extent to which everyone hated him. But he got put on trial, yeah, so he didn't right. know he was a criminal. Yeah, that's that's what it was, though. Servaland was like, everyone in the galaxy hated your name. And he's like, so I've heard. You know, he well, he didn't stick around to learn, I guess, whether he really was this hated guy or, what, mm-hmm. you know, in society. Yeah, well, he ditched yeah. because he was going to be killed. He said that everybody in his entire, everybody who ever followed him, including his wife, got killed. So he was like, he didn't want to stick around because he knew he was next. Yeah, basically. the Federation massacred them, similar to what happened with Blake, actually. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, I just thought I, I'm at least somewhat interested in, in stuff like this because it's sort of mind trippy to me and mm-hmm. hard to wrap my head around. But like, I really like this episode for bringing stuff up like this and not in the most overt way. Mm-hmm. I mean... We haven't really had that on the show before. I'm trying to think if there was ever an instance of it. I'm not really thinking that there was. Well, I mean, a lot of... Yeah, uh, there were a lot, I would say, because a lot happens in the show that's just reported, right? And this is actually going to be something that happens in the... I don't know how much you know about the the finale of Blake 7, but they're going to bring... This is, like, something that they're going to touch on there as well. But, like... If you think about Blake's 
testimony as to what happened versus the federations mm-hmm. and like their different versions of like the truth right they're all in in uh, in reports we don't see any of that happen on screen and even if we did um what's the effect of that what's the effect uh, i guess in a tv show is my question uh, or something i'm going to be thinking about if they expand on this of seeing something versus hearing something or hearing a character say it or uh, you know do 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 different characters saying different things or the same thing mm-hmm. does that change your opinion or your trust in what's going on and i don't know it's just something i think this episode brings up or something that made me think about i don't know i mean you can never really trust the spoken word by that i mean you can never really trust what people say right everybody's story is going to be tainted in some way nobody's memory is perfect right and and also because like bias itself is just inherent in language whenever you use language you're you're practicing bias Mm -hmm. because language is so rhetorical because i mean you're 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 practicing rhetoric whenever you use language and and bias is inherent in rhetoric so as like a a rhetorical object a tv show which which it is whether people like to admit it or not it's a tv show there's there's a rhetoric behind it and and that's and I'm I'm not saying that intentionality is part of that rhetoric. I'm not saying the people who make the show are inserting their own rhetoric. But there's like in it's just in the show like existing. It, there's a rhetoric whether that is in line with quote unquote creators' intentions or not is another story. But like there's a bias in what you see also in a, in a show. What what mm-hmm. the show shows to you. Right. I mean, so like, the, is it? Can yeah. any of it really be considered true? I mean, it's because they're trying to construct a specific narrative, right? They yep. only show you what they need to construct that narrative. I mean, like, if they hadn't shown us Blake being put on trial and having his memory falsely implanted in the first episode, you would just have to take the show's word at it in every episode after that that Blake was actually, like, a good person who wasn't a child <laughs> rapist, right? Well, then, and then again, it also, you know, the, the show even questions itself then when, you, when it brings in um, Inga. Yeah is interesting yeah but that could almost also be considered a retcon like i don't think it's a retcon because i don't think it contradicts anything that that happened previously it's just something that makes you think like maybe there's something to these charges obviously the blake and inga or not obviously but to me it seems that blake and inga's supposed relationship which is again just reported was like consensual mm-hmm. wasn't like at least i don't think like blake raping inga or anything like that but yeah, I don't know, just something to think about. And something this episode brings to the forefront a little more than previous episodes have, I think. I guess, yeah. I can see that. I mean, we get like Avon talking with Orak to the Liberator, and the Liberator's like, yeah, I'm on my Zen is like, I'm on my way. And like if we <laughs> didn't actually like immediately chilling. <laughs> if we didn't immediately just see a shot of the Liberator zooming towards the planet, I guess you wouldn't have anything to believe. I don't know why the Liberator is eight hours away when like the life pods ejected from the Liberator and crashed on the planet immediately. But you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, also the thing is that's an interesting scenario you, you bring up because you mentioned how Zen says he's coming, and then you see the shot of the Liberator, and you be- mm-hmm. then you believe oh Zen's coming to pick him up. Whereas yeah. like that shot in itself doesn't do anything to indicate he could be flying the other way. He could be flying away from the planet. I mean, he could be. <laughs> so, I mean, that's... But context some... clues, like, what they tell you is that he's coming, and then you see it coming. Like, then it would have been a big reveal at the end, like, oh, the Zen actually zoomed off in the other direction, <laughs> and it would have still worked, because it it wasn't like they lied to you. Yeah, exactly, and that's, that's something that's interesting to me, is, like, the the only reason why 
And like, I'm not saying I questioned it either. As soon as I saw that shot of Zen coming, I was like, okay, he's coming. But like, the reason why I think you would, or most people would believe that he's coming is because of like the context. And then you get that shot and you're like, okay, he's coming. Mm-hmm. I'm just interested in like how that all works. Yeah. I mean, we're going we're gonna to see more this season, how it plays out. Anyway, Servalan, they're all, uh, they're all sort of there. Servalan confronts Avon. Avon, I think. Yeah, because she overhears this him is, talking with the Liberator. This is later at night. and uh, Also, there's the ship that docks with the Liberator. You mentioned that. Servalan asks for a change of clothes, uh, and Dana gives her, I guess, some one of her clothes. But this was actually, um, or one of her outfits, but Which this was... bad on Servalan, to be honest. Looked great well, on Dana. Looks pretty bad on Servalan. Well, Servalan... <laughs> Servaland says it's not her color and it's like purple. So I was like, what is your color, Servaland? White. Or oh, red. I just, she pulled yeah, off red pretty well. I just imagined like Servaland opening up her closet and it's just like a cartoon character's closet full of the same like outfits, except there's like one red outfit. But any, anyway, what I wanted to say was Dana also supporting the Dana Servaland foil type setup mm-hmm. is that Dana's, out, Dana's entire design of her character is basically she looks a lot like Servland, right? A short, she wears a lot short-haired, of white in this a story short-haired too. woman who wears like white, pretty revealing clothing. Mm-hmm. Servland's not wearing a bra again, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no bras in space. No, but Dana wears a lot of white in the story, and I noticed that because I thought it was interesting. Definitely, I think playing off that Dana being a foil to Servland, they dress Servland in the story in. A, a, a color that actually Dana also wears in the story. Dana also wears purple. Right. And then they put Servaland in purple. And then they, once they put Servaland in purple, they start putting Dana in white. Whoa. Which is deep. <laughs> Dana is also black. I don't think that this show is even going to touch on race. No. It's never touched on it before. I think, da- like, but Dana is the only, the first, like, non white major character of this show, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think so. And again, I don't think the show is even going to bring it up. Yeah, I don't really want um, them to. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, move on. I mean, class is definitely thing in Blake 7. We get mm-hmm. that. They don't touch, again, they don't touch on this too much, but we get that info that Blake was like an alpha grade right. and Villa was like a delta grade or something mm-hmm. like that. And Jenna had one of the highest IQs in the Federation. Yeah, which is, might be related to class. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know if they're going to. I mean, when Servaland uh, said that, that or anything, when Servaland said that, she said something like she was like a high level citizen or something because of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I remember that. So, <clears throat> yeah, Lauren is white and and well, Lauren, Hal yeah, well, is Lauren, black. And Lauren's like, adopted. When Lauren comes in, Hal's like, she's like, "Daddy, Daddy," and then Avon kind of looks at Hal and he's like, "This is my adopted daughter, Lauren." Yeah. And it's revealed or implied that. She was a Saren. Yeah, it's 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 just straight up stated. He, I think Hal just says like she was a Saren, but she was raised by us, which well, is like dies, actually so, well, anyway. it's it's like they don't touch on it much, but like when you really get into how that works, that's like a really dark could potentially a really dark thing. Like, did they take this baby yeah. away? Did they just steal her, or like did they just find her and adopt her? Or yeah, like they don't even get into this, but like there's so much potential like dark backstory here. There's a lot of like things they hint at with Hal being like not really that great of a person, being kind of like a 
actually a bad person. And, and again, this is something that this episode touches on in like a really interesting way in terms of like what you see and what you believe in the episode itself. Because when you like on screen, Hal's like really cool. But then, mm-hmm. like, you get into these potential things that he could have done. I mean, he's obviously a, a criminal, and so is Blake. So is pretty much all the other Liberator crew. But, like, you get into some of these things, and you're like, wait a minute. Should we really be, like, on Hal's side in this episode? Yes, we probably should be. But who knows? Anyway, Sovland proposes this deal to Avon. <laughs> she says now that the Federation's in shambles and now that Star One's destroyed, he's the one who can put it all back together. With the Liberator and with Orak. And they can do it together, Silverland and Avon. And Avon Join leads me, in. Former and, enemies ruling the galaxy as well. They they have a little <laughs> light makeout session. <laughs> well, Avon was just using it as a um, as a tool, tool to, to like grab choke Silverland by the throat. <laughs> May, maybe Silverland's into that. I mean, <laughs> Avon wears that leather. <laughs> choke me harder, Daddy. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, Avon's basically like, no. Avon, there, uh, what is this? Con- There's a cool like comment still giving Avon all the cool lines. Servaland says the only limit to what they could do oh, is right. their imagination. And, and Avon, Avon says, says uh, imagine is my only limit. I'd be dead within a week. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, Avon. <laughs> <laughs> Although this episode does still hint at what the latter sort of half of Series B hinted at, which is that Avon just puts up like a sort of front whereas he actually does really care about puts up an emotional wall yeah an emotional force wall you might say (laughs) well this is actually earlier on but when dana is about to kill the Saren, avon stops her and again this is something we mentioned earlier but it seems like they're trying to uh have avon be uh, you know be more similar to blake which makes sense to me because he's going to be the new main character Mm -hmm. and we discussed this a little earlier uh, before we started recording, but I knew that Avon replaced Blake like before I even started watching mm-hmm. Blake Seven, and you also said that you knew pretty, I knew pretty early, early on. on. Yeah, and and I was one because I don't know how many spoilers you really know, uh, or I didn't like when we first started watching, and I, I pretty much spoiled everything before even starting, uh, before even watching episode one, and there were like multiple like vague references you made to this, and I was like, wait a minute. Is this just coincidence? Because sometimes you'd be like, well, Blake's the main character. It's like, can't uh, can't uh, replace the main character. You just make some sort of comment that like hinted at this. And I was like, wait a minute. Do you know about this? Should yeah. I say something? <laughs> and I didn't, but yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, I didn't know what happened now. Oh, wow. But I knew. So did my, was my text what spoiled it happening now? No, I mean, you would have. You would have. No, I mean, I like, watched the episode by the time. Yeah, you texted me. So, but like this could have just been something where it was just like it's just Avon this episode, and they find Blake next episode. I guess, but I didn't really think it would be because I knew I knew yeah. Jenna wasn't coming back. So I just figured that if Jenna wasn't coming back, there wasn't a reason for them not to bring Blake back. Yeah, this isn't the last we're gonna get of Blake and Jenna, though. Not gonna spoil whether or not they come back. Jenna comes there's, back. There's this isn't the last we get of them. That's all I'm going to say. We're going to find out Jenna's dead like a week from now. And then we're like, that hospital ship Jenna was on crashed. Everybody died. So basically what happens next is... is Servaland Basically decided, almost at the end of the episode, surprisingly. Servaland, Servaland kills Hal. Yeah, Servaland was weird in this episode. You know, if I were Servaland, maybe Servaland can just see things that I can't. 
But like, if I were Servalan, I would think my best bet in this entire situation is teaming up with Avon and. and it is your best bet. It's just but unequivocally she, your best. But bet. she doesn't do it. She no, like, she kills it. She kills Hal, steals Orac, and runs off. Uh, we Laura also dies. dies, which we find out because Hal, Dana, and Laura go off to monitor what the uh, Sarens are doing because mm-hmm. they're sort of they they the Sarens now know the secret entrance to their base where they know where that is but they just keep zapping them and then they're like hey eventually they'll go away i guess like a like a like a moth keeps burning itself on a lamp and eventually it realizes this lamp's not cool right well hal wants to sort of condition them to stay away from that area so he wants dana to keep zapping dana just wants to kill them but hal says no trigger happy yeah she is and hal says no uh we have to just you know, zap them or whatever. They'll go away eventually. And Laura decides to stay on. And zap them. And zap them. But, but eventually the guy comes up like, hello, as- Laura. She falls asleep. Yeah. <laughs> and that gets her killed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I then thought what was going to happen. And kills Hal by shooting out his eye and then basically just taunting him as he tries to kill her without being able to see. Yeah. Well, kind of going back real dark. quick. What I thought was going to happen with Dark because he can't see. Okay, no. What I thought was going to happen with Laura is that she was going to turn on Hal and Dana. I thought she was going to go back to the Sarens and be like, well, you were my people and you, they I was taken away. They could have done you. that, but they didn't have enough time to, in my opinion. No, they didn't. And I was fine with how they, you know, achieved that. I mean, they basically, that, they basically had to kill her off to give Dana a reason to leave. Right. And there's also a lot of, like, cool cinematography stuff in this episode, I noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, even at the beginning, I don't... There's not been much non-stationary camera work in Blake 7, but at the beginning with Villa and Callie... Right. was done very well and i hate to say this but like the when you see uh laura's dead body which the sarens have you know hung Splayed. up like the shot when dana and avon see that is like pretty cool in my opinion i mean it's impactful yep which is more than can be said about a lot of deaths on this show yeah and it's implied <clears> that they tor- it's, well, it's implied also they torture her before before they killed Kill her, her. Because the way they have her makeup done is it looks like she has a black eye and stuff like that. Yeah. Anyway, so Servaland runs off with Orac and then Avon and Dana Ser- go after her. Servaland and Hal also have sort of a discussion, and this is where we get more of Hal's sort of backstory about how his entire crew... Right. He, he tried to lead a rebellion, which was almost pretty successful, mm-hmm. but then the the Federation promised them all a fair trial, but ended up just killing them all. Yeah. <laughs> kind of sucks for Hal, I guess. Which is very similar to what happened with Blake. Yeah, that was the one thing I immediately noticed is that it sounds exactly like what happened to Blake. So maybe with Dana, they're exploring like what happens to like a survivor of that aftermath who's not just the leader, who's not the organizer of it, because Blake was the only one who survived. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, or well, there was also the um, guy whose name I'm forgetting who was played by that Canadian, famous Canadian actor, the older one in The Way Back. He survived, I, I guess. But yeah, Dana is a very interesting character. Hopefully they won't just ditch her entire character like they did with Gan and Jenna, basically. Uh, something tells me they won't, though. Because, tells me they won't. Because of what they set up with her and Servaland here. So they eventually find Servaland captured by the Sarens, and Dana just wants to kill her right then and there. And Avon's like, no, we need Orak. And Dana's like, I don't even know what Orak is. I don't care about Orak. And Avon's like, you kill her. I'm not taking you off this planet. He yeah. doesn't say that. He said he, meant, he basically he, implies it. He says that because they don't know where Orak is hidden, they need Servaland to tell them. Yeah. Which, as it turns out, 
they do need server land for that because she just buried it in the beach and there's no way you would have found it. Yeah. But anyway, this was, I don't know, this was my what would Blake do moment of this story. Because, I mean, I don't know, if this was Blake in Avon's situation, I feel like Blake is a lot more, at least latter half of series B, yeah. Blake was a lot yep. more trigger happy. Yeah, I think a lot of our, these decisions are also going to come down to, like, are we talking about Series B Blake or Series A Blake? Because Series A Blake probably would have done what Avon was done. Like, oh, we need to find a rack. But, like, latter half of Series B Blake, who's just so exasperated with Silverland and Travis and the entire Federation as a whole, would have just been like, yeah, just gun her down, whatever. Or he would have he wouldn't even just gunned her down. They would He would have just run up to her while she was up there, uh, told her he would let her out if she tells him where Orak is first, and then just been like, yep, sorry, I lied. Because Avon lets her out from the Salmon's capture and then asks her where Orak is. Yep. That's just bad bargaining. Always put your chips on the table first. Well, Servalan is actually playing Avon like a fiddle later on when they're in the cave, but we'll get there. And I actually forgot my to insert my what would Blake do thing. The what would Blake do moment. The WWBD. Which you get shirts to say, what would yep. Blake do? <laughs> Official Zenith shirts, but they say, what would Blake do? (laughs) We could put Zenith on the back and the front can say, what would Blake do? But mine was when Servalan and Avon are sort of discussing things in Hal's sort of compound. I don't think Blake would have even really... Because Avon seems to consider Servalan's proposition, at least in some capacity. Mm Mm-hmm. And that seems like something Avon would do. They're keeping up that yeah. character. They're keeping up his characterization where it seems like they are changing his character as well. So they're it's at least keeping... M- they're morphing. Y- yeah, really. mor- morphing. So it's at least some sort of gradual change where they're at least keeping recognizable Avon aspects. Right. Which is good. But I don't think Blake would have... Blake would have just completely shut Servaland down here. Wouldn't have, you know, yeah. wouldn't have played her off. Wouldn't have you know, so. kissed her or anything. I'm pretty sure he would have just... Shut her down if he would if he even would listen to her. Would proposition. listen to her, right? I agree. I think Blake would have just shut it down right then and there. And I think that I actually think that that would have made it make more sense for Serverland to run off with Orak and escape, uh, just being completely yeah. shut down like that. The fact that Avon considers it makes it a little weird that Serverland then just kind of decides to run off, right? Because I feel like Serverland would know that she seems to have gotten through to Avon at least a little bit, right? Well, the thing is, Servalan has always been manipulative. She's always taken the action that, you know, is going to serve her best, Mm -hmm. even if it means teaming up with Avon in this case. Right. And I just don't see, again, maybe I'm missing something here, but I don't see how her acting alone, I mean, I know she was trying to bargain with the Sarens as well, Mm -hmm. but I don't see how not teaming up with Avon and Dana and Hal, I guess, Mm -hmm isn't the best option that seems to be the best way to get off the planet the best way to survive here yeah i mean i agree but it's just something we have to go with i think yep forgot to mention that avon set the zen to automatic pickup when he arrives and right he learns from orak that the liberator is that blake and jenna are no longer on the liberator and that villa and callie are nowhere to be found basically yeah, he learns that Jenna's on a hospital ship. I don't remember where they say Blake's gone. Um, they say Blake is safe. Blake is safe. Down and safe. <laughs> and then basically the end of the story, Servaland's like, well, I've got the teleporter bracelet. Because she basically basically bargains with Avon to get a teleporter bracelet in order to tell him where Orak is. Tell her where Orak is, sorry. And then 
Avon's just like, well, I gave you the broken one. She's like, what? And then as she goes to check it, Dana just kind of jumps her and steals the bracelet <laughs> off of her. And then Avon and and Dana teleport up. Serverline escapes into a trap door and the Sarahs are just like really confused. <laughs> and then on the ship, we meet Del Tarrant. He's like, what are you doing on my ship? And he pulls a gun on Avon and that's the end. Well, actually, it ends with Avon making what, I guess, Paul Darrow making what I think was supposed to be a scared slash surprised face, but really just looked more like he was just really confused (laughs) and didn't know what was going on. Well, you'd probably be really confused and surprised in that situation. I guess. It was kind of a funny face, in my opinion. So we'd actually seen a shot. There was a scene before where a ship was coming towards the Liberator and Zen asked if Avon... Uh, wanted to shoot it down, but he said no because it could be Villa or Callie coming back. feel like he's going to really regret that decision next week. Well, Dev Tarrant becomes... Del or, Tarrant. Sorry, Del Tarrant. Uh, freaking Terry Nation naming every character Tarrant. And it's just one letter off to Dev and Del. Don't forget Del Grant. Uh, well, he becomes a, a crew member. Spoiler. He and Dana are the new ones. Yeah, but do we ever find out if Del Tarrant is related to Dev Tarrant? I don't know. Okay. I don't, I'm not sure. Some, something tells me no, but maybe. Something maybe it's tells a throwaway you no, line. but maybe in your heart you know it's a yes. <laughs> maybe there's a throwaway line about how like they were cousins or something. Yeah. Anyway, overall, I think it was a really good episode. However, I'm not really satisfied with the explanation for Blake and Jenna disappearing right now. If they don't address it next week in some further capacity, I'm going to be really unsatisfied with the way that they handled Blake and Jenna leaving. If at least next week they're like, oh, you know, we don't know where the hospital ship Jenna went and and Jenna was on went and we can't find Blake right now, then I'll be happy. Right, because clearly Villa and Callie aren't on the ship either. So if they don't, if they find Villa and Callie next week and don't somehow at least address the fact that they're not finding Blake (laughs) and Jenna, then I'm going to be pretty disappointed. Well... I'm probably going to regret saying this eventually, but I agree with that to like some extent. And I kind of almost wish they did what Doctor Who Series 2, the 2006 series, did with Rose. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, two, Series 3, the 2007 one with Martha. Mm-hmm. What they did with Rose in that season, which if you don't know, is that they kept you know continually mm-hmm. bringing her up. I want Blake and Jenna, because basically of the reasons you mentioned to be a part of this season, at mm-hmm. least in name, in some capacity, maybe not in every single episode, but, you know, looking for them or them having or like bringing them up or something right. in conversation, uh, I think needs to be at least a part of this season, at least maybe in a couple early episodes. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to just forget Blake and Jenna or just go like, well, we <laughs> Well, we tried. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think there definitely needs to be a, a mention of them at least for... A few weeks. I mean, they did that with Gan. They brought him up in trial. Right. Gan had sort of one mention or one episode that revolved around the aftermath of his Uh death. Uh, I want something like that for Blake and Jenna. And this Mm -hmm. episode ends on a cliffhanger, so obviously the next one is... Going to pick up right there. At least you would hope. And I I was saying before we started, too, if I didn't know Dana was part of the crew, I would just assume that next week, and I didn't end, if it didn't end in a cliffhanger, I would just assume next week that you would just disappear and they'd never bring her up again. Yeah, I would absolutely assume that 
you know, they would have two episodes with Dana and then just never bring her up again because of how many people they've brought onto the Liberator and never and brought just, up again. They just vanish. <laughs> I mean, maybe like Avon or Blake was a serial killer and there's like a whole bunch of bodies in that treasure room. <laughs> that's why we never see it. Because <laughs> it's just like filled to the brim with oh, bodies Jesus. of people they just bring onto the Liberator and murder. There, they do give a time frame of the entirety of Blake 7 from episode 1 up until now, which is a couple years. Yeah. I forget who says, I think it's Hal. Hal or maybe Serverland, I don't remember. Yeah. Which seems right to me, a couple years. Yeah. I mean, typically when I'm watching a TV show, I assume that like one series takes place over the course of the year, unless really? it's specified it otherwise. Like, yeah, that seems like not every show would fit into that very well. Like summer. I mean, some like 24, like explicitly not over the course of a year, right? But it's just a general assumption I make that unless told otherwise, it takes place over about the course of a year. Well, all right, whatever folks are, I wouldn't make that assumption. I would just not assume anything. I like having everything in like a neat timeline order, which is why Doctor Who makes me really irritated sometimes because it's like really difficult to fit things into a nice neat timeline. Well, that'll happen to you when you have like 800 something episodes or 900. Plus like or a billion like novels, novels and audios. <laughs> anyway, I really liked this episode. I liked the... Maybe this is just because I like the new direction Series C seems to be going mm -hmm. in, but as of right now, I'm going to say that this is my first, probably favorite or second favorite next to Duel. This is in my top five, probably. Yeah, this was really good. I liked... Maybe top ten. I liked what they're doing with Servalan. I liked seeing Servalan, how, what Servalan does when she's not like in charge of any big force, because this is the thing. Like mm -hmm. The Federation is so destroyed, and Servalan is, in this episode at least, so separated from everyone that her power is like completely gone yet at the same time she still seems really like cunning and right. dangerous in this episode on her own which was cool right i don't know i really enjoyed it i think it sets up series c really well i think it sets up a lot of things that could be interesting dana's a really interesting character yeah i really hope they're they continue with having dana be as cool as she was in this and not just drop off like ganon and jenna did and, drop off literally yeah. like gan did and I'm interested to see the new kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Interactions between the crew, the kind of what they're going to do with Avon the as the leader. For. Yeah. I don't know. Thing is, I don't know if Avon is going to be officially installed as their leader or if they're just going to eventually turn to Avon as like the one who is going to replace Blake. I mean, that's something we'll have, we'll to, have see. to see yep. if it's a natural thing, if Avon just takes command. Blake didn't even just take him on. It just kind of naturally fell upon him because he was the one who assembled everybody. No, he also had Gan and Jenna like backing him when, when Avon challenged him, which was like, well, three yeah, against one. It worked out really well for which, Gan. Yeah, well, I mean, in Avon's, in Avon's case, it was like, well, three against one and this guy who could probably beat the hell out of me if he wanted to is yeah, on Yeah, and this guy Blake's who could side. probably literally murder me with his <laughs> bare hands. So we got... Yet another email from regular contributor and correspondent, Mr. Sergeant Drano. Oh, Damn it, Mr. just Sergeant, Sergeant Drano. Drano. You make the same joke every time <laughs> I say Mr. Sergeant Drano in exactly the same delivery. But I corrected myself this time. Anyway, so I'll just go ahead and read it. And I actually, this email is actually like pretty long, detailed, and gets into some interesting things, which I actually wrote a response to this, which I'm going to be reading, which might be quite long and hard to respond to because it's... Uh, sort of semi-stream consciousness stuff, but, like, I really think the stuff in this email is interesting, so I just wanted to respond in that way. Yeah, Provide, and like, I think, actual feedback rather than just, like, great, I think, thanks for emailing. I think I'm going to put both the text of the email as well as the text of Keon's response 
on the website in some way. Right. In and the if, show notes. If this I'll turns, figure it out. Right. If this, I think, turns into like a really long discussion with really detailed responses, we might like stop doing the full thing, at least mm-hmm. on my end. Mm-hmm. We'll, read, we'll read any email we get, but like yeah. if I have like really long responses like this, I want to read this one, but like we might want to not do this anymore. We'll, we'll have to see. But anyway, let's just get into this. Hey, guys. So. This. Okay. Sorry. This one. I just wanted to say that this is a, we're recording this part a week later. Yeah. Um, so I have some As different always. opinions than what I uh, expressed what in the actual episode, which was like five minutes ago for you, anyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially about the science fiction stuff, which was like a week ago for anyone listening and two weeks for us recording. Hey guys, so Aftermath, did you guys catch the exposition-heavy cameo by Federation Space Captain Mike Yates? Pretty great, huh? What? Yeah, yes, no we did. did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I thought the special effects were pretty solid this episode, considering the error and budget. Apparently Avon is very beautiful. Who knew? Gotta love Avon lampshading, randomly encountering Silverlan. It has a perverse kind of logic to it. Our meeting is the most unlikely happening I could imagine, therefore we meet. Surprise seems inappropriate somehow. I love the way Avon and Silverlan monologue at each other like dueling supervillains. Because they are. <laughs> Just gonna throw some shade at Avon there. Also love Silverlan and Dana being super polite but also super nasty to each other at the same time. How about that Avon Silverlan kiss, huh? You guys shipping them yet? Personally, it makes me cringe, but in a good way somehow. I think we both recognized it as a a power play by Avon. Wow. (laughs) Boy, Dana has a really, really bad day this episode. How you like her so far? Pretty dark stuff with her whole family murdered. Right. We haven't talked much about Dana, actually. No, we haven't, actually. Surprisingly. Even though we just finished recording Power Play, we didn't even talk much about Dana in that. Because really, Dana was secondary to the plot of Power Play. It was, once again, it was really an Avon episode. Both this and Power Play, in my opinion, were Avon episodes. Right, and they lead, this is it's it's definitely a two parter. So we'll have to see where they go with both Dana and Del Tarrant. Right. And the Liberators in the hands of the Federation. Another good cliffhanger. Another gripping episode. A great continuation from Star One. It's really starting to feel like an ongoing story, kind of like those first few episodes of Series A. Seven out of seven, of course. Yeah, and this is something we talk about, too. The, it's starting play. to feel more serialized. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk about that next week. Yeah, and power play. All right, so now we get into the real nitty-gritty, <laughs> the meat and potatoes. Now, the other week, you guys had an interesting discussion on the nature of science fiction, the difference between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi, and the difference between science fiction and fantasy. I thought I'd throw my two cents in. In case you missed this discussion, I believe it was in the Star One episode. I don't remember what episode it was in. It was either in Star One or The, the Keeper. Keeper. I think it was The Keeper, I actually. think it was The Keeper. Yep. I think you're right. But we will link it in the show notes if you want to go listen to that first and then come back to this. So Sergeant Janet continues. My view is that both science fiction and fantasy are speculative works that involve concepts that are currently, as far as we know, not possible, or at the very least not known. A science fiction example could be faster than light travel. A fantasy example could be fire-breathing dragons. The difference between science fiction and fantasy is the basis by which the impossible is made possible within that literary universe. For science fiction, the basis is speculative scientific knowledge that we don't know yet in our present. For fantasy, that basis is supernatural and magical. The difference between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi is basically the extent to which the creators go into detail about their theoretical future science, the extent to which that speculative work is based on what is actually scientifically known in real life. Probably the best example of hard sci-fi currently out there, in my opinion, is the sci-fi channel series The Expanse. Based on the series of books of the same name, if you somehow haven't seen it, you totally should. I see similarities between it and Blake 7. Until next time, thank you. Namaste and good luck. Sergeant Drano Station 7 Door. So I think I'll respond first since Keon <laughs> has a massively long response and mine is decidedly less long. First off, I have seen the, I've seen The Expanse. I've watched the first two seasons and I haven't watched the third season yet because I've been waiting for it to finish airing so I can kind of binge watch through the whole season. 
I have not read the books, but my dad has. My dad keeps recommending it to me, and I keep telling him I don't have time to read them yet. But I do now, so I should probably get on that. I don't know if I necessarily agree with the, the distinction that you make between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. In my opinion, the distinction between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi areas always seem a little seemed a little arbitrary to me. I always just consider it under the umbrella branch of sci-fi. And like I said in that discussion, I think sci-fi... I actually do agree with you in the aspect that science fiction and fantasy take place in a world that is not our own or is in some way changed from our own and involves things that are typically not possible in our world, which is why, once again, I consider historical fiction to be a form of science fiction or a form of fantasy, I guess, depending on... The fantastic. That's I, yeah. just, I just like to call it the fantastic. Right. I'm slowly drifting away from that, too. And... Yeah, once again, though, I consider science fiction and fantasy to be basically essentially the same thing. Science fiction typically being more science-based and fantasy being more, I guess, ma- magic-based. Even historically, like, even before, like, the pulp magazines, these things are really linked. You read something like Blazing World by, God, what's her name? Uh, well, if you don't know what Blazing World is, it's like this six, 17th or 16th century, like, it's considered possibly, like, the first science fiction story in the English tradition. It's about this British woman who goes to another world and like becomes the queen of that world and stuff. It's really Mm -hmm. interesting. And I mean, at the end of the day, Margaret Cavendish is her name. Keon's definition of science fiction and fantasy is going to be way looser than mine. I'm already bracing myself (laughs) for the long response that he has because he's going to learn a lot of literary theory. You can already tell. But I don't know. In general, I just consider science fiction and fantasy to not take place in, I guess, I think you called it, Keon, the the real world. The given world. The given world, sorry. That's um, Samuel Delaney's term, which I like. And that's just typically where I tend to draw the dividing line between science fiction and fantasy, which does allow some things to be considered science fiction that I guess some people may disagree with. Once again, Keon's definition of science fiction and fantasy is a lot looser than that. I just feel like if the story doesn't directly deal with something that's not in the given world, then I don't think it can be considered like science fiction. Like as I lay dying seems to be the one that we always come back to because, because it's about linguistics, but doesn't feature anything fantastic basically, which is a novel that to me just is just considered, I guess just fiction or non-science fiction. Whereas the Keanu be considered science fiction because it deals with linguistics. Sure. I mean, yeah, I guess we'll get into my response now. I actually, I want to talk about the, how you mentioned, or I wanted to talk about something that actually happened in Aftermath too. So I'll just read this, I guess, typos and all, because I wrote it all on my phone, <laughs> which is annoying. But, which um, was a good idea. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll just get into it and read it verbatim. You mentioned the convo, or subtraino. <laughs> subtraino, good start. <laughs> you mentioned the convo between Avon, conversation between Avon and Servalan. I actually think the interaction between Hal and Servalan is more interesting. I said last time that Aftermath doesn't bring up race, but that's not really the case. The way Aftermath thematizes the relationship between power, reported speech, belief, and ethos, I guess, is pretty amazing, and part of why Aftermath is my favorite episode. And looking back, race is for sure a part of that. When Servalan tells Hal that his name was hated throughout the galaxy after he fled, he says that might have been true. I've never been sure. In this moment, Servalan, who has lost a lot of power now that the Federation is in shambles, tries to leverage power through the rhetoric of this reported speech. Other scenes in this episode touch on the question of, like, what's the ethos of a TV episode, and how does that ethos work when the show renders reported speech along with certain shots and visuals? What and why do we believe in terms of the rhetoric of the episode? For example, Zen telling Avon he's coming soon or whatever. And the 
or or sorry, the rhetoric in the episode, which would be Zen telling Avon he's coming soon, and the rhetoric of the episode, the shot of the Liberator moving. How do those relationships, how does the relationship between those two work? Servalan's ethos here is really heavily related to who she is or was and how much power she has slash had. But it doesn't work. Hal's choice not to believe that might have been true. I've never been sure. Quote, and the conditional mood of this sentence probably referring to the foobard state of the Federation. This seems to indicate a devalue of reported speech as a rhetorical tool. Hal instead noticed, I noticed, values and leverages silence rather than speech in an interesting way because he doesn't go into detail about where what's-her-name, the adopted daughter, I forgot her name, comes from, for example. And this is actually a really interesting thing for a black character and especially a black character in a seemingly otherwise white space because all the other characters except Dana in this are white and almost all the characters in the entire show have been white. Um, this is really interesting for a character like Hal to do since historically Afro-descended people in Euro or Euro-descended spaces have been silenced in a lot of ways, whether it was African slaves brought to the United States being beaten for speaking their native language or being disallowed to read or write, and even up to today where black people don't necessarily have the same freedoms in terms of what they can say as white people do, um, in terms of like the consequences of like things that you say. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's interesting that how would sort of leverage silence in that way and like claim power in silence. And there's probably a lot more to say than that, but that's all I got for that. <laughs> anyway, you bring up a lot about sci-fi and fantasy as well. One of the first things you touch on is the changing and changeable nature of these things, quote, concepts that are currently, as far as we know, not possible, unquote. And this is actually a part of the reason why I'm starting. And I, I mentioned this before. It might have been on Trust Your Doctor, our Doctor Who podcast, but I'm starting to see science fiction, fantasy, and these generic categories, and what I mean by generic is like genre categories, um, as critical approaches rather than like categorizations and descriptors. After all, a story will be whatever it is, no matter what labels people can and have put on them. And this is actually a linguistic concept and a discussion that's been going on for hundreds of years and like exceeds what I'm able or willing to put into this reply. You go into the difference between sci-fi and fantasy, and I agree that these two are critical lenses, different approaches you can take to the cultural product, and there's a history involved in these two. We're on this later, but for example, the science fictional tradition includes many stories that involve aliens, including aliens in a story necessarily means that story is entering into conversation and continuum with the legacy and tradition of the products canonicized or not via a science fictional critical approach, um, regardless of intent or the creators of the product think. I don't draw as heavy a distinction between sci-fi and fantasy for this reason and many others as well, and I think that's a trend for people, me and Dylan's age and younger, and a good trend actually. And I think this is actually something older generations will mm-hmm. have a problem with because of the different like nature and the reception and cultural views of these like genre stories in the past. But the fantastic, the term I like to use for convenience because it's actually annoying always referring to these as critical approaches, <laughs> and um, I think is far more accepted now within the mainstream of things that most people like. And again, these things are always changing. So let's look at X through a science fictional lens, or let's do a fantasy crit of X, or let's do eco crit of X, or how does X thematize moments of speculative future in terms of race, gender, economics, protest, trauma theory, semiotic theory. And these are all questions I think we can ask now. After all, stories are about many things and can be viewed from any number of critical perspectives as long as you can go to the story and um, with it. And by that, I mean like locate it in the product itself. So again, that's why I see all of these as critical approaches. You go into detail about how you define the difference between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi, and this is actually related to the multiplicity of stories. Um, But let's put that aside for a minute and focus on these terms, hard and soft, which are quite derogatory and probably useless now as, no, really, as there is definitely a gender component to these. No, I mean, I'm laughing because I agree. Um, I've talked about how the word science has changed over time before, and that word originally uh, meant knowledge as opposed to art, which is skill. Eventually, and nowadays, it came... 
has come to mean knowledge that we learn through the scientific me method, or in other words, the knowledge method. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into my own personal problems with this, but I have many. Anyway, the hard, soft bifurcation is actually a radical shift if we're using science to refer to knowledge gained through the scientific method, one of the many methods to knowledge. Then why do we dichotomize this stuff? Is it to masculinize and valorize hard science, which most people use to refer to the natural sciences? which is a much better term in my opinion, but still one I have problems with, like chemistry, biology, uh, physics, while feminizing and reducing soft science like linguistics, semiotics, and psychology, which are social sciences, I guess. And these things also use the scientific method. Um, I don't know, but I think it's time to move beyond these confusing terms that can be leveraged in a rhetorically nasty and strange way. Getting back to what you were saying about the difference between your definition of hard sci-fi and your definition of soft sci-fi, again, I think this is another reason to view these as a, more as a critical lens and not succumb to our human need to categorize everything too much. <laughs> you put your definitions of hard and soft sci-fi on a gradable scale, the ex quote, the extent to which the creators go into detail about their theoretical future science, end quote. Ignoring your implications about authorial voice here, this is interesting. Where's the point where something becomes hard sci-fi? You're probably not doing this intentionally, but the scale you put these things on, I think, really valorizes hard sci-fi. What if the product contains detailed explanations rooted in current knowledge of some speculative stuff and does a, quote, soft sci-fi unquote, look at other pieces. Again, I see a need for a multiplicity in critical approaches. What if we look at the product through the lens of hard sci-fi, soft sci-fi, and fantasy, and the tra traditions of all those at once? What will we find out? How will we reinterpret the past and past products, and how will that help us learn more? Notice another thing, this definition is very different than the one Dylan suggested however many weeks ago, which was that more or less that science fiction has to deal with the natural sciences. I think that was actually on Trust Your Doctor, now that I go back and think about it. Possibly. That might be one critical lens in itself, or perhaps the result of one, the one I would say is extremely hard to prove and doesn't hold up well in terms of history. Sorry, Dylan, just my own opinion. I'll try watching The Expanse. I don't Oh, we talk about The Expanse here. I'll try watching The Expanse at some point, probably, although I pretty much only watch cartoons now. <laughs> also, I know there's a discussion about sci-fi versus science fiction and the implications and uses of those terms, and trust me, I've ran into plenty of people who are like, it's science fiction, don't say sci-fi. But whatever, man. Oh, that's just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I also want to read this part of an article from Wikipedia. It's on the Human Sciences page, and I think it's relevant. I don't know what I think of it, honestly, but I think it's relevant to this. So if you go on, if you look up Human Science on Wikipedia, there's this Meaning of Science section. So I'm going to read it. This is verbatim from Wikipedia. Ambiguity and confusion regarding usage of the term science, empirical science, and the scientific method have complicated the usage of the term human science with respect to human activities. The term science is derived from the Latin scientia, meaning knowledge. Science may be appropriately used to refer to any branch of knowledge or study dealing with a body of facts or truths systematically arranged to show the operation of general laws. However, according to positivists, the only authentic knowledge is scientific knowledge, which comes from positive affirmation of theories through st uh, strict scientific method, the application of knowledge or mathematics. As a result of the positivist influence, the term science is frequently employed as a synonym for empirical science. Empirical science is knowledge-based on the scientific method, a systematic approach to verification of knowledge first developed for dealing with natural physical phenomena and emphasizing the importance of experience based on sensory observation. However, even with regard to the natural sciences, significant difference exists among scientists and philosophers of science with regard to what constitutes valid scientific method. For example, evolutionary biology, geology, and astronomy, studying events that cannot be repeated, can use a method of historical narratives. More recently, usage of the term has been extended to the study of human social phenomena. Thus, natural and social sciences are commonly classified as science, whereas the study of classics, language, literature, music, philosophy, history, religion, and the visual and performing arts are referred to as the humanities. 
Ambiguity with respect to the meaning of the term science is aggravated by the widespread use of the term formal science with reference to any one of several sciences that is predominantly concerned with abstract form that cannot be validated by physical experience through the senses, such as logic, mathematics, and the theoretical branches of computer science, information theory, and statistics. Again, I don't have anything else to say about that. just wanted to read it because I thought it was interesting and probably related to this. My voice really hurts. Yeah, mine too. Just because I'm coming down with a cold. And this is killing me. Yeah. I mean, before we end, there was actually a question I wanted to pose to Sergeant Drainer that I think may shine some illuminating light on his, his definition between hide and soft science fiction. Because I was thinking this while, while you were talking, Keon, about how, hard, how it seems like Drano is placing hard and soft science fiction on a, on a sliding scale. And you asked, well, where's the dividing point? Like, what if it, it's hard sci-fi about one thing and it's soft sci-fi about one, another thing? And what I, you know, what I was curious about, I was thinking about this television show called Person of Interest, which I'm sure you've yeah, probably you heard bring about. It up like every I, I bring it up a lot because it's like in my top five favorite television shows of all time. But I consider that to be science fiction, and, and not a lot of people do. But I consider it to be science fiction because it deals with like an artificial intelligence that can see all crime, which is not something that, as far as I know, we have in the given world, right? But but it's, it made me think like, you know, if you define hard science fiction as just like how much technical detail they go into about, you know, the extent to which that speculative work is based on what's actually like scientifically known. Like, I almost feel like when you define it like that, because I think hard and science, soft science fiction is a, is a dumb delineation personally. But when you define it like that, it almost seems like there's an element of of your own personal experience in it. What I'm saying is it's possible in that definition for an author to provide an, an, an extensive explanation of how something works. But if that explanation is, say, above your technical level, it may just seem to you to be technobabble. Right, and also this is and something... to you technobabble, then to you that might make it seem like it's just soft science fiction because you don't understand that all this technology may be actually possible or it may be beyond your understanding. So to you, it may be soft science fiction, but to say like... But, you know, because I have a background in physics, I may understand it. Just to me, it may be hard science fiction, just based on that. Right. And this is something um, Drano actually brings up. Sergeant Drano, my bad, uh, actually brings up um, in the, like, when he first started talking about this, um, he says, I forget what it was, but, like, things that aren't currently known. And this is also the mm-hmm. thing, like, if you wrote a story about, like, the internet and showed mm-hmm. that to someone from, like, 200 AD or something, that's going to be, like, fantasy to them right whereas that's like something that's real for us i mean not only not even that you could write a story about the internet and show it to say someone who lives like in in africa um, who doesn't have access to a computer yeah there's like a location there's like a locational bias there's like what i'm saying is like a personal bias when you put it on like a sliding scale like that because not everybody's experiences is the same and not everybody knows the same amount about sure things yeah again that's why i see is, like my question was like so where is the you know what happens when like there's something that i understand but maybe somebody else doesn't is it hard sci-fi to me and then soft sci-fi to them or is there like a hard dividing like line again that's why i like see looking at these things through like a particular lens of like hard sci-fi or soft sci-fi is as like a thing we should start probably doing probably <clears throat> not we as in like me and dylan and sergeant <laughs> reno but like we as like I don't actually. I don't know who I'm referring to, but like, I think it should be we. done. Yeah, it's just the yeah. Oh, it's just me then. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you. You're the, you're just just you, Keon. We can yeah. all go live our lives as sheep, and you can be the sheep herder. Sure, but yeah, thanks for like even bringing this up because I think this is really interesting. But like, also, I just want to say, 
uh, probably like if this is something that shouldn't be in this podcast, like if this is just a waste of time, because we're mm-hmm. not actually like necessarily talking about Blake Seven when we talk about this stuff. So if people don't like like us getting this into detail, then I don't know if this is like something we should keep including, or it can be just like if know, it's something people if if it's something that people don't want us to include, then we can start cutting it out and. I'm not sure what we'll email do correspondence with, with Sergeant Drano over this. If if there are people <laughs> who like it and don't want it to be in the podcast episode, we I can just maybe put them up on the website as something for people to listen to. Or I'm just thinking, you know, we've been thinking a lot about starting like a quote general British science fiction podcast. And if it's something that or people want, British it, shows like I mean, um, yeah. But what I was saying, if it's something people want to hear more of, then if we ever start that podcast, then. I feel like that will be something that will come up a lot because if we're, just, we're yeah. defining it as a British quote science fiction podcast, then it'll come up a lot about what is science fiction and how are we defining that podcast. Sure. But once again, if if you don't want it in the episodes, email us because we say this a lot, but we do take feedback seriously, especially for this podcast. So if it's something that you don't enjoy, you feel like it doesn't have a, you do enjoy, but maybe it doesn't have a place in in this specific podcast, then email us. And let us know, and we can work something out right. that it's starting, <laughs> you know, work. Yeah, because it's starting to become a really detailed discussion. So, I mean, it becomes increasingly more detailed every week, right? It, yep. I mean, it's, by nature, it has to. Well, anyway. Not really. We could just be like, "Yeah, uh, that's fine," or something. One week, I guess. Right? Yeah. Anyway, but that's not who we are. <laughs> that's not who Sergeant Drano is either. <laughs> if you would like to email us and contribute your voice to this discussion or like i said provide feedback on whether you think this is something that should be continued to be included in this podcast because you know it does become more detailed and we do talk about it quite a bit then you can reach us at the doctor decadentvegetable.com questions comments concerns angry man's love letters your thoughts on science fiction versus fantasy as well as where do you think series c is going to be going you can find us on YouTube at Decorative Vegetable. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Google Play at Zenith, a Blake 7 podcast. Be sure to leave a rating if you like the show. Check us out on Facebook. Trust your doctor. Like us on Facebook. Also check us out on Twitter at TYD Podcast and follow us on Twitter. And next time we're watching Power Play. But until then, the end. <laughs>